0: Welcome to WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. I'm Greg Roman with the Middle East Forum Century Radio Broadcast. It has been an exciting week since our program last week with many monumental events affecting America's views towards the Middle East. First, we had Donald J. Trump, the President of the United States, recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Almost at the same time when he was making that announcement, With Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu sitting by his side, rockets were landing only a few hours beforehand, destroying a house in the Mishmeret village or Moshav in the center of the state of Israel, where seven individuals, five adults, a toddler and an infant were miraculously saved by rushing to a bomb shelter, having faced shock and shrapnel going all over some of their uh, uh, injuries being present and requiring them to go to Mayor Hospital in Kfar Saba. The Israeli response came 12 hours later when Prime Minister Netanyahu was promising that at the hour that he would speak, there would be retaliation in the Gaza Strip. The original rocket itself is not the first one to land in the center of Israel since 2014, but two others were launched at Tel Aviv only a week before where we found Hamas, the terror organization, claiming that both were work accidents. I don't know how raining vicious displays of menacing missiles on cities can lead you to having a work accident when you find your own terror organization amassing thousands of missiles being pointed at civilian city centers, getting ready to rain doomsday and its devices on Israeli civilians. And then... When you have the Israeli response, which is to ensure that Hamas's military intelligence headquarters in the Gaza Strip can no longer operate, missile factories can no longer operate, that you have to drive the terrorists underground, and even in the bowels of Hamas's terror attack tunnels, they find themselves effectively trying to carry out violence against the Jewish state, Hamas acts with surprise. And in turn, they retaliate to the Israeli retribution on the Strip with dozens of other missiles around the Gaza periphery. This cycle of violence goes on week after week, year after year, and ever since Hamas was able to obtain control of the Gaza Strip after Israel's disengagement in August of 2005 with their subsequent takeover in July of 2007, it has been the same story. Thousands of Palestinians dead Hundreds of Israelis injured, dozens of soldiers on the Israeli side also put in the grave. And it's not because of Western policymaking. It's not because of Israel exercising her right to self-defense. It only has to do with Hamas's willfulness to pursue a policy that invokes death and harm and suffering on their own people rather than sitting at the table of peace, renouncing violence, renouncing their rejection of a policy that seeks to put the Jews into the sea and in doing so They find themselves in a philosophical line that only breeds violence towards Palestinians, a self-inflicted wound on their own national identity. But the reason I bring this up in the beginning of this broadcast is not because of the AIPAC policy conference that took place over the last three days in Washington, D.C., nor is it because of the historic recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. It has to do with looking at the internal Palestinian body politic and expecting a major policy announcement from the White House that can be delivered only after Israel goes to vote on April 9th. And this has to do with the following issue. Prior to Donald J. Trump's election to be the 45th president of the United States on January or February of 2017, right after he was sworn in, one of the first things that he promised in a meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu, and I think they've met some six or seven times now, was to bring about what he called the deal of the century. The ultimate deal maker, as he ascribes to himself, Mr. Donald J. Trump, expects to bring a willing Israeli partner who will sit at any table of peace, especially when requested by the President of the United States, or just in general, the executive branch, and an unwilling Palestinian partner. So so, so some questions have to be asked here about the deal of the century, and especially in the wake of what we now see as bipartisan support, rank bipartisan support for the state of Israel coming out of the AIPAC policy conference. How will the prime minister use this new political capital? How will he use the denunciation by Democratic Speaker, House Majority Leader, and House minority, or House Conference Chair? The top three Democrats in the House over the last three days, and the Minority Leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, all denounced the anti-Semites within their party. But I think we have to look a little bit closer at what the position of the White House is going to be vis-a-vis Israel after the April 9th elections. Because while the Israelis are willing to sit at the table, the Palestinians are threefold in their representation. And I'd like to know exactly who the president expects to negotiate for the Palestinian side. We'll start with the Palestinian Authority, led by President Mahmoud Abbas, also known by guerre Abu Mazen the head of the PA. Not only is he suffering from kidney failure, from renal failure, he has liver disease. The man is in his mid-80s and continues to rule over the West Bank with a corrupt hand, tacitly giving Israel cooperation, not because it secures his people, but because it secures his own coffers. Let us not forget that Abu Mazen's sons, his two sons who reside in the United Arab Emirates, both control the cigarette and cell phone monopoly over the West Bank. So when Abu Mazen goes, it's not as if though there's going to be a new election for president of the Palestinian Authority. It'll be a policy of continuity of corruption and of kleptocracy where The leaders of that organization, the leaders of the semi-autonomous political authority that calls itself the PA and has its capital in Ramallah, when you negotiate with them, they won't be representing Palestinian interests. They'll be representing Palestinian oligarchs' interests. And I don't know if we go according to polls right now, if there was a presidential election held amongst the Palestinian people in Gaza and the West Bank. The most popular leader to come out of that poll would not be someone associated with Abu Mazen, with Mahmoud Abbas, or any of his cronies. It would go to the second potential Palestinian partner for Trump, who I am not saying that will come to the table of peace, but that does represent somewhere between one-third and one-half of the Palestinian people. And that presumptive nominee for president, the most popular potential candidate when Abu Mazen goes, is Ismail Haniya, the head of Hamas. The same Hamas that just blew up a house in the middle of Kfar Saba in central Israel and launched two rockets at Israel in Ramad in Tel Aviv only one week before that. It's also the same Hamas that refuses to negotiate with Israel directly, relying either on Qatari or Hamas or, or, or Egyptian intermediaries to try to broker ceasefires every time they have a work accident or they make a mistake by firing into the center of the country. And lastly, there's a Palestinian diaspora community that expects to be able to return to the 48 borders with Israel, where you have Jewish-majority cities right now, that if the Palestinians get their way, and of course this would not be accepted under a peace agreement, but if they were trying to be able to get their own... um, dream deal, as, as Trump calls the deal of the century, I expect the Palestinian diaspora to reject any deal that either Hamas in Gaza or Abu Mazen in Ramallah were to potentially sign their name to with President Trump. So the Israelis will cooperate, but exactly who will represent the Palestinian negotiating position? And what authority do they have? Considering the fact that their president is serving year 14 of a four-year term, the Islamists don't even recognize the democratic institutions that they used to get into power. They're now ruling by Sharia, and the Palestinian diaspora won't even be sitting at the table. The deal of the century may end up being the flop of the century. More on these subjects and others after these messages. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watch.org or check us out on Twitter at IslamistWatch.
1: Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. For each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines.
0: Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. I am very excited to be joined by our next guest, the former coordinator of the Islamist Watch program at the Middle East Forum, one of the main editors at uh, Liberty Island Books, and David, I know you're going to correct me if I said that wrong, and also a burgeoning author and the representative for the counter-Islamist grid in Los Angeles, Mr. David Swindle.
2: Thanks so much for having me on, Greg. It's always wonderful to talk
0: to you. Yeah, and definitely always nice to have you on Hear your perspectives from the left coast, and also to hear about a big protest that just took place outside the Woodland Hills Hilton when Ilhan Omar, the notorious anti-Semitic member of Congress, was recently giving a fundraising speech for an equally or even more nefarious anti-Semitic organization, the Council on American Islamic Relations, CARE, and its Los Angeles chapter. David, what can you tell us about this event?
2: Well, first of all, um, I, I did attend the event. Um, I wasn't able to get inside. I stayed outside at the protests, and there were humongous protests against her. I counted over 700 people, and you had signs of all kinds challenging her for her anti-Semitism. You had people waving the United States flag and the Israel flag. You had people you know, singing hymns and prayers, um, really upset with what she was doing. So um but yeah it's a really important to understand that this is a fundraiser. This is a fundraiser for an anti Semitic organization that is part of an anti Semitic Islamist movement. And I thought it was really important. I wrote this article for the Washington Examiner on Friday trying to put into context what this means that Ilhan Omar is fundraising for care. In the past she's been blasted for her anti Semitic statements, but Personally, I find it more offensive to be raising money and legitimizing an anti Semitic organization than simply, you know, a few tweets.
0: So let's let's assume that she's doing all of this out of the innocence of her heart and she's trying to help the American Muslim community, and she's going to an organization that ascribes itself to be the voice of American Islam. What do you think is going on in her head right now? considering that you have chartered both her career, and I know that you've been following her quite closely. If we just look at your Twitter feed, you're, you're way on top of this issue, David. But also you followed CARE, and you were running a, a CARE monitor at Islamist Watch for the better part of two or three years. And I still think that you have a project that you're working on. Where does a member of Congress, a former refugee from Somalia that has risen. And and if if we were to look at her story without the vitriol that she spews on a daily basis, that would be the exemplar of the American dream. And then we have another organization which has a very good grassroots operation. I mean, they've been very much able to take advantage of this uh, fragility of the left and the political correctness of intersectionality to get on top. How do these two people that could be a, not two people. How, how do, does this one member of Congress and this organization, which could be the, 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 the prime example of what it means to be an American, especially as an immigrant and representing immigrants, end up turning into the evil duo that we saw on Sunday?
2: Well, I think it's important to understand that this uh, fundraiser that she attended on, on Saturday, and she also did a secret fundraiser on Sunday, we don't know where, but somewhere in Orange County. This isn't her first rodeo with care. Uh, I did a little research to find out. Well, has she been to other events? You know, was this a one-off that she was ignorant about? And absolutely not. Um, in December 2017, Omar spoke at a Care San Francisco fundraiser, and she she spoke alongside two of the most radical and controversial of Islamist leaders in the country. Those being Imam Suraj Wahaj, and Linda Sarsour. Both of those at, at, in December. And she can't. She has to know what these, these individuals have been doing for, for years for their lives. And, and she was there when they were speaking. So to, there's no way that she can claim ignorance about the, the radical connections and the politicization of, of this organization. It's, CARE tries to pass itself off as though it's a religious organization that's serving all Muslims and it's a civil rights organization. But really we see now that it's a political organization. That's a political organization that raises money that, fun- that funds politicians with money, and which is ultimately kind of ironic, considering that her all about the Benjamins claim that Israel's support is is just based on on being bribed by, you know, Jews out to hypnotize the world. And here she is, right in the midst of fundraising with a, a deeply politicized organization.
0: Uh- You know, God forbid that she might be accused of dual loyalty towards the United States and Islamism, but that's not the kind of argument that people on our side use, David. Right. What we try to do is to look at the values of our elected officials and those who claim to represent our opinions in the greater, let's call it, political debate. And the criticisms that you have put forward of both Ilhan Omar and of the Council on American Islamic Relations is that be, their behavior is inherently anti-American. And it's not as if though that they're trying to uh, shill just for Muslim Brotherhood affiliates. But what they're doing is they're creating a split in the American political fabric. Can, can you uh, elaborate on that?
2: Yeah. Um, one of the things that's happened over the past couple of years is that um, – Islamism has kind of formed into a strange alliance with the identity politics movement, with um, the, the particularly kind of trendy leftism that's, right, that's happening right now. So as a result, um, Muslims are, are, are cast in this argument as victims, just like uh, victims of racism and victims of sexism and victims of homophobia, now Islamophobia. Um, has been put in that context too. Turning, if you care about Muslims and if you care about you know opposing anti-islamic bigotry, now it's believed that you have to be aligned with organizations like care and and other groups that have been spawned from the Muslim Brotherhood. So they've been doing a really good job of casting this as, as a progressive cause to defend Muslims when really, you know as as you were speaking speaking earlier, that we're dealing with with Muslims that are, defenders of Hamas and that have been since their their foundation that care really is simply was created in order to be a, a, a new mouthpiece for Hamas and it has been tremendously successful in, in getting that that position out there
0: now I, I know you and I have been on the back and forth of many email chains about how we look at the 21st century Islamist movement in the United States and not just looking at care but we have um, the Islamic Circle of North America, we have the Muslim Action Society, there's ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, and many of these institutions represent different strains and streams of American Islamism. Uh, ISNA has been typically associated with Hezbollah, uh, Shia Islam, or or, or 12 or radical Shia Islam associated with Iran and and, and Lebanon. Uh, Care has most often represented Arab-American Islamists. We find organizations like ICNA and uh, the MAS are sometimes more affiliated with, um, let's call it Austral-Asian, if we want to go more that way, uh, Indonesia, Pakistan. But when we have these two women who have been elected to Congress, Ilhan Omar, who is a Somali Muslim, and then Rashida Tlaib, a Palestinian-American Muslim. Where do we find the sort of uh, unique differences in their platforms? Or are they all pushing the same message, and that's why they may have gained so much strength?
2: Between Omar and Tlaib, I don't see very significant differences. Um, Tlaib, from what I've seen in uh, uh, pals around with with the same crowd, Um so I don't think between the two of them there, there is as um, major of differences uh, as we've seen in, in, um, in the way that the Islamist movement has, has kind of at times been together, at times fragmented. Um, you know, Daniel Pipes has really done an excellent job uh, in recent years of showing how um, different strains of the Islamist movement sometimes ally, sometimes disagree. Um, in particular, you know, talking about, about the, the division between the monarchist and democratic side, you know, uh, it's, it's been very clear how Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have been starting to split from uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, whereas um, now uh, Turkey has really in particular uh, moved in to fund and, and lead the, a lot of the Islamist uh, activism.
0: David, I'd like to get your opinion on an article that just came out from the Middle East Forum on March 20th, written by MEF fellow Alex Jaffe. I'm just going to read you the executive summary, and I'd like your reaction. The Democratic Party has been overtaken by an anti-Semitism crisis, a process of corbanization akin to that of the British Labor Party. The process is three principal proponents, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar personify three components, socialism, Palestinianism, and Islamism. So I'll I'll cut myself off for a second. This is what I mean by looking at the different uh, uh, strains or or the sub uh, uh, sub subrosa of of where these guys are coming from. Mm -hmm. The trajectory of their red-green alliance is leading the Democratic Party towards socialism. For American Jews, this means their deep allegiance to the Democratic Party over many generations has been rewarded with abandonment and suspicion. For Israel, there is the prospect of a future democratic administration that advocates its destruction. For the rest of the world, the, part, the party's severe inward turn portends global retreat. David, your thoughts.
2: Well, I think that's a, that's a really solid, uh, compelling analysis. Um, and it's, there is a, a tendency to, to look at uh, you know the rise of AOC and, uh, and, and her two uh, Islamist colleagues. Um, and, and to really feel like that's that's what's happening and, you know, the German Corbynization of, of the Democratic Party is happening and they're being tolerant of of anti-Semitism. Personally, I don't see that as being a, as being a big shift. You know, I, I feel like during the Obama administration, you know, tolerance of anti-Semitism and Islamism was was happening. I think that that's that trend is, has happened already for a long time in the Democratic Party. But it can get better or it can get worse. Now, I don't think it's an absolute certainty that it's going to get worse, because uh, you know what I've found in looking at political movements and which ideological movements rise and fall, it's really oftentimes primarily dependent on the quality and the strength of the leadership. So, if this movement uh, that blends democratic socialism with Islamism and, and anti-Semitism, if it's if going to get, you know further get within the Democratic Party. Um, a big question is going to be to what extent are these three congresswomen actually going to be effective political leaders? Are they just going to make comments and get attention? Are they just going to get attention on social media? Or are they actually going to expand this out to a broader movement? And, you know, um, what was really interesting is uh, this question about AOC um, and and these congressmen. I actually was interviewed. I interviewed um, some people, uh, a guy that led one of the Protests at at, uh, at the at the event on Sunday at Saturday, and he was actually led a small group of liberal Jews Anti-Trump people, but they still felt very compelled to go out there And when I asked him well, are you worried about AOC influencing Millennials? You know to come believe this this stuff and He he didn't see AOC as as the key problem. He saw social media as the problem and in particular he emphasized that for example um, Al Jazeera has a very effective program called AJ Plus, where they put out viral videos. And a lot of them um, you know, will have Islamist or Palestinian content, but a lot of other of them really won't. They'll be progressive and they'll be talking about GLBTQ issues and social justice type issues. So as a result, they're able to draw in uh, a lot of these younger millennials that are concerned about social justice and, occur- and concerned about anti-racism. And lure them in with that, and then lay into them the that uh, you know Israel's an apartheid state, and you need to boycott Israel, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: So, David, do you mind joining us for another 20, 25 minutes?
2: Yeah, I can hang out. That's fine.
0: All right. So, we are now joined by Karis Raya, one of the uh, other associates who writes for the Counter Islamist Grid. Uh, she also moonlights as care as not Karis cameras a uh, letter-writing coordinator in New York. She has her master's degree from the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya focusing on counterterrorism. And, uh, David, it's unique that you were just talking about uh, Ocasio-Cortez because Karis is joining us live from New York City. Karis, welcome to oh, the yes. program. Hi.
3: Thanks
0: so much for having me, Greg. So, Karis, you uh, have been covering Islamism in New York now for the past few months. How does what David is talking about jive with what's going on in New York City?
3: Um, it's, uh, it's very relevant to what's going on in New York City. You know, uh, there was just a uh, United Against uh, Islamophobia uh, protest in Times Square that was co-sponsored by um, several prominent Islamist organizations such as Muslim American um, Society and, uh, and uh, CARE. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think we're, we're pretty much at the epicenter of it, if you ask me, because um, you have prominent institutions such as Columbia University um, and other universities that are really promoting um, you know, anti-Israel and anti-Semitic rhetoric. Um, and you also have prominent politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, in New York City who Are definitely contributing to this hateful rhetoric and these dangerous ideas that are uh, really catching the ears of young people and Millennials.
0: So one of the things that we do here at the Middle East Forum is, and and especially on MEF Century Radio, is we try to thread the needle between disparate areas of American life and try to show how the Islamist influence in this country (laughs) is affecting not just what's going on in the street, not just what's going on in American politics, but also what's going on in the American campus. I mean, if we look at cradle-to-grave policies of how Islamism in America has been entrenched in all walks of American life, you can start with prisons and looking at imams who are receiving, uh, those especially associated with the Nation of Islam or even with CARE or or ICNA or ISNA, are receiving federal subsidies to preach their hate in American prisons. If we look at school cafeterias, there are expect, expectations and exceptions which are being made for Islamists that no other religious minority group is requesting because they know that there's a separation between synagogue and state, church and state. But when it comes to mosque and state, God forbid that we offer any criticism. But Karis, you just were at Columbia University, which is a private institution, and you wrote in the tower recently that there. are is now an effort to try to appropriate language associated with the Holocaust, arguably the 20th century's greatest, most horrific event that took place with the massacre of 6 million Jews. And there there is now this effort to try to associate the suffering of the Jews of Europe with what I would argue a self-inflicted disaster of the Palestinians. And, and going beyond that, we find that this language is also being appropriated on the political avenue of what Islamists are trying to do in comparing their situation to what other minority groups in this country faced. Can you go a little bit more into what you saw at Columbia University? And then maybe we can thread that back to the earlier conversation of how Politicians these days are taking labels that don't necessarily belong to them and are trying to steal the narrative of other groups who truly did suffer?
3: Absolutely. You know, Columbia University, what is happening on that campus is really dangerous and people just have no idea. Um, Essentially, there were two events that I went to a few months ago Uh, one of which completely appropriated the Holocaust and drew a moral equivalence between the 6 million Jews that were slaughtered uh, in World War II to the roughly 600,000 Palestinians who were displaced. And in doing so, um, what I saw was a form of historical revision. And even bordering on a form of Holocaust denial, Um, because in making this connection, the panelists uh, put forth the nonsensical uh, delusion and just the outright fabrication that the Holocaust was only created, or excuse me, that Israel was only created as a response to World War II. This is a very dangerous uh, anti-Semitic libel that is being spread um, it completely ignores international law, uh, all the legal precedents that were in, pra- in place prior to, uh, to World War II that set the foundation for the state of Israel to exist, such as the Balfour Declaration and the San Remo Conference, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the fact that panelists can and academics can uh, propagate this lie is... Is really um, it's really disconcerting because <laughs> you know this is the opposite of what of what uh, academic institutions are supposed to stand for. They're supposed to stand for truth and intellectual honesty. And by telling people that Israel was created as a result of the Holocaust, essentially you're saying that. Uh, and if you're trying to demonize Israel, what that says then is that um, Israel really shouldn't exist because there was nothing in place except for there there was there was there was no ties to the land that Jews had there. There was no indigenous roots already set up. Jews were just kind of you know plopped onto the land Jewish refugees you know white white European Jewish refugees who had suffered in the Holocaust and now they were just given a swath of land arbitrarily for no reason. Um, and, and that's just completely not true. The second event I actually saw dealt with this concept of white Jews, which is a new, you know, emerging and very pernicious form of anti-Semitism.
2: And Karis,
0: we'll, we'll get to that quickly. I want to yeah. finish the article that you had, uh, written here for the tower on Columbia's event, uh, with a Holocaust appropriation. I, I never thought I would say that, just that term, um, Ideologically driven academics, such as the speakers at these events, spread misinformation and dazzle the audience, not with the power of the arguments, but with a grandiosity that hides the lack of factual depth. David, it sounds like she's describing Ilhan Omar as well with this.
2: Yeah, that's really well put.
0: (laughs) So, guys, we're going to go to a break and then we're going to continue the second half of our conversation on these issues. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure.
4: And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. We're joined by Karis Rea from New York City, a associate with the Counter-Islamist Grid, and her colleague in California out in Orange County, David Swindle, former coordinator of Islamist Watch and currently writing for CIG out in L.A. Guys, welcome back to the program. Thank
3: you. Thank you. you.
0: So, David, I want to go back to you for a second, not just on what's happening with Islamism in Los Angeles, but I think that we have an opportunity now to talk about the similarity and differences between how East Coast Islamists and West Coast Islamists, and I'm not trying to create some kind of, uh, you know, Suge Knight, uh, you know, notorious B.I.G. Uh, uh, <laughs> equivalent of Islamist conflict between the, uh, the East Coast and the West Coast Islamists, but um, I think that you have two unique uh outlets that are in los angeles and in new york and two uh, arenas of culture if you will where you have a lot of hollywood stars you have a lot of celebrities who are out in los angeles you have a lot of the intellectual elite uh that are in new york city and i think a lot of of uh more of, of the art crowd that are out there but david can you tell us what you think is maybe unique about what islamists are trying to do in los angeles versus what they're doing around the rest of the country
2: yeah. Um, I think one one organization in particular that we really don't talk about as as often <clears throat> is MPAC, the Muslim Public Affairs Committee. Um, and they're based here in Los Angeles. They also have a Washington, D.C. office. But in particular, they're the only Islamist organization that I'm aware of that has a, a person specifically dedicated to Hollywood and to movies. Um, her name is Sue Obidi, and she's in charge of their Hollywood Bureau. So... They um, each year will usually have a, um, a banquet of sorts where they're where they will honor different people uh, in Hollywood in entertainment who they believe has uh, you know been consistent with the messages that they're trying to put out, um, and so I, I think that really marks them as distinct and different. Uh, and I'm really hoping to kind of keep an eye on them a bit more um, and see. Also, you know, they pr- they promote particular. Um, you know, uh, Muslim musicians and comedians. Uh, I'm not saying that they're all going to be necessarily Islamist, but um, it, it does sort of raise raise the eyebrow of, of what are they, what is this artist doing or saying that um, they're going to get the, the, the thumbs up from a, uh, an Islamist organization.
0: So Karis, I want to give the lead into to your opinion on how New York Islamists are unique to the rest of the country by reading to you the opening two paragraphs of an article that came out from the Investigative Project on Terrorism yesterday, titled, Linda Sarsour's NYU Makeover. She certainly looked like Linda Sarsour, the flame-throwing Islamist political activist, and the speaker had Sarsour's voice. But the woman who spoke Monday night at New York University's Skirball Center for the Performing Arts seemed entirely unfamiliar with Sarsour's own views. Arguing that unity is not uniformity. Sarsour said she's cool with people who don't share her views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as, well, as long as they can work together on other causes. She said, it doesn't matter to me who you are. Come to the aid of people who are the most broken in our country, and that's a thing I never just understood. I never went to a movement and asked people to fill out a form and say, please tell me all your political views. I mean, that's not how it works. Karis, I can't imagine a more bold-faced lie coming out of Linda Sarsour's lips than what she said at NYU a few nights ago. What do you think is the way in which New York Islamists are approaching the New York intelligentsia and also the civic leadership of that city where you're right now? And do you think that it's possible for these Islamists to work with others in coalition regardless of what they think? Or do you think there's a shining, glaring exception to the rule that you've covered often in the last few months?
3: Uh, that's a great question. Um, I don't really cover other cities, so I'm not sure how New York is unique compared to them. But I can tell you, I was at that talk um, at NYU. I saw the entire interview and conversation with Linda Star I was sitting right there in the fourth in the fourth row, and um, you know, the investigative project has it spot on. She is smart. She is. She, uh, you know, she really did convey that she is open-minded and available to people who do who think differently than she does. But, you know, she was also unapologetically pro-BDS um, and anti-Israel. And what that says, and, you know, anti-Trump and therefore anti-Trump supporters. And so what that says, if you read between the lines, is that
4: you know, yes,
3: she's open to people having different views, as long as you're not a Trump supporter and as long as you're not a Zionist, right? So there's still a hierarchy in her mind. You can't join her movement. There's certain lines that you can't cross if you want to be part of her movement. And, you know, it'd be one thing if these lines were, were legitimate. It'd be one thing if the people that, you know, she didn't want to associate with actually were preaching hate, you know, or racist or colonialist. But Zionists aren't haters; quite the opposite. You know, Zionists believe in the right to self-determination for the Jewish people. It has nothing to do with with Palestinians. Um, Zionists disagree on almost everything, from settlements to Netanyahu. But they are all united in the fact that they believe that Jews has a right. Jews have a right as a people with their own religion, culture, um, language to uh, flourish in their ancestral homeland that they have li- lived consistently in for 3,000 years. So if anything, this is actually very, Zionism should be very in line with what Linda Sarsour was preaching at NYU. Um, let's, you know, let's, uh, t-
0: let's listen to Linda in her own words. Sure. <laughs> Less than three years ago, in a very uh, similar high-profile speech, Where she may have said something completely contradicting her statements at NYU from just a few nights ago. So she says, if if you weren't able to hear that, we have limits to the type of friendships that we're looking for right now. So Linda of two nights ago says, we'll be friends with anybody. We'll agree with anybody. Just, you know, we have some things that uh, we might disagree on. And only three years ago, she says, we have limits to the friendships that we're willing to enact. And I think that what's happening here, David and Karis, is that there is a morphology that is present in her doctrinaire response to how she has evolved, if you will. And what she's doing is very similar to what other Islamists do throughout the rest of the world. It's like that old uh, adage that what a Palestinian leader may say in English is very different from what he may say in Arabic. But what you see here is, is, is that, Islamist leaders in this country and I, I want to get away from the uh, the Jewish and the anti-Semitism issue for a second because it's not just threatening American Jews it's threatening a wide swath of American life whether we deal like we said beforehand education higher education civic engagement uh, interfaith relations between Christians and Muslims one thing that always, it bothers me is I have no idea how someone like Linda Sarsour can get up at a stage at one of America's most liberal universities claim to represent her support for the LGBTQIA community in this country who have been unfairly oppressed for hundreds of years. And then she goes up and offers support for regimes that are inherently homophobic and even have the death penalty for the LGBT community in those countries. They're saying one thing out of their mouth that appeals to a wider audience. And when you catch them behind closed doors and David, I do expect you to be able to get the sarsour secret elect, not sarsour, but to uh, Omar's secret lecture next time. They say <laughs> yeah. something completely different in, in your mind. Let's start off with Karis and then we'll get to David. How are these individuals able to claim to represent alliances with liberal America and at the same time represent the globe's most illiberal regimes and find a certain amount of affinity towards them. Karis?
3: I think, like I said, Linda Sarsour is very clever. And like you said, she's had to morph uh, you know, what she says in public a little bit based on the reactions that people have to her. So, so as more op-eds are written and more information comes out about her support of Sharia law and her, her values, which are rooted in uh, very illiberal ideas, she's had to cover her tracks more. So at this event, um, for example, she addressed the idea of supporting liberal re- regimes, and she was very clever. So she said, you know, something along the lines of um, you know, "Yes, Iran." prevents women from being able to have a choice when it comes to wearing the hijab. This is unacceptable. She unequivocally came out against the regime of Iran for its treatment of women. But she followed that up immediately by saying, but if we're going to criticize Iran for its oppression, then we have to equally criticize France for not allowing, for banning women from wearing the hijab. Now, this is on its surface, you know, something that could seem, you know, like a legitimate thing to say, yes, like France, France bans people from wearing the hijab and and Iran does the exact opposite. It's kind of the same thing. But, you know, anyone with with that's able to be a little more discerning than that can understand, regardless of whether you think what you think about the French ban ban. On um, on the hijab and, and burqas, regardless of whether you think it's it's right or wrong, to equate um, a law that merely uh, you know determines um, a form of dress with uh, laws that and, uh, laws that directly lead to violence against women, women um, as well as death in a lot of cases is just completely dishonest.
0: Right. We, we have um, sort of like a, a, a cross-section here between what I think is telling women what they must do versus telling women what they can't do. One seems to actively support oppression, the other passively supports oppression. As in, you create these narrow pathways in Iran, which lead to 10-year prison sentences and 1,000 lashes, extracting corporal violent punishment— against a minority group there, where in France, they're trying to preserve the character of their secular state. And frankly, if you want to wear a cowboy hat or the Oscar Mayer wiener costume or a hijab or whatever, I couldn't care less. But I'm not going to say that I'm going to give you 100 lashes for, for not wearing it. Uh, David, what's your take on how Sor and, and also other Islamist leaders are able to say one thing but actually mean something completely different?
2: I think it's really important to understand the, the long-term history of the Muslim Brotherhood, and in particular to, to see that they're very pragmatic and always have been in terms of what tactics are going to be used. So, when we look and see that sometimes they're in favor of violence, and other times they prefer non-violence, then it can be a little bit more sensible in understanding how Sarsour can seemingly flip, you know, flip here and flop there. Um, I think in regards to, uh, you know, Islamists and, you know, trying to ally with with Western gay rights groups, um, you know, I guess the the question that I would turn around and pose is if the um, anti-gay marriage cause had prevailed and if that was still such an issue, is there any doubt that um, these Islamists would instead be trying to ally with more with social conservatives I mean, that was a a concept that was still tried and pursued, you know, not that long ago. Um, And I think really what we're seeing now with with Islamists more on the left is simply them realizing um, this is where the influence is going to be. This is where the young people are. So pragmatically, they're realizing that that is more to their benefit.
0: So I'm going to finish with one last question, and we'll get the final thoughts. There's this debate going on right now, I think, amongst conservative circles on whether we should just ignore this socialist, illiberal, Islamist alliance, which is sweeping like wildfire through the millennial population in this country and just focus on Gen X and baby boomers, boomers and, and for the next generation. Just rely on their support and then allow the millennials to grow up and evolve and to mature a little bit. And they'll realize that socialism is not the answer, but actually the cause of many of their problems. Or is it important to try to bifurcate and to try to split the Islamists from their liberal allies and try to create a third wave of American populism that is not Sharia based or is not supportive of liberal regimes but will take us back to the traditional Democrat-Republican divide. What say you, David?
2: You know, I I think there isn't going to be a singular, we definitely need to do this tactic. Um, When I was at the protests on Saturday, the thing that was really apparent is that there are so many different um, approaches, so many different encounter beliefs, so many different tactics, and it's going to be an ongoing debate about, is this one more effective than that one? Should we be aligning with this group? Should we not be aligning with, with that group? Um, but I don't think it's necessary to just write off uh, the millennials. Uh, that they will, uh, that most of them, many of them, hopefully, you know, will come to abandon socialism as they, they grow older. You know, that was my experience. You know, it just takes a few years in the workplace, oftentimes, to see that capitalism can work. That people are, are not nece- don't necessarily have an inherently good nature all the time. So, uh, you know, a lot of the, the kind of apocalypticism about, oh, the millennials, they're, you know, they've embraced all this and that. I, I, I think uh, as they grow old, they're going to mature. And there are plenty of people, millennials, that are very effectively, you know, going on these issues. Uh, ben Shapiro, uh, you know, just is, is fantastic at providing arguments that millennials get and can turn them. so
0: And I think it's a, a millennial that's involved with both counter-islamism and uh alternative culture or, or cross-cultural currents karis what say you
3: um well i'm i'm flattered that you would call me a millennial i think i'm a little <laughs> i think i'm a little older than what would be
0: i, I think the there. millennials are 1983 to 2001
3: amazing but i am a millennial wow. <laughs> um I'm, yeah, I feel like I just um, you know I have a whole new identity now.
0: Um, <laughs> I could take it back. Yeah, we could no, put you in like Generation Y if that's something that's there. Yeah. I don't know why we why no, we didn't no, have Generation Z. We just went to this millennial identity. But uh, anyway, sorry, your well, answer. Oh, so
3: I will take the millennial label, uh, label with pride. I will wear it with pride. Um, Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a really, it's a really good question. And I, I, I agree with David. Um, I don't think there's, I don't think there's one strategy or one tactic that, um, conservatives should be Mm -hmm. employing. Um, I think it really just depends what you're interested in. I mean, the, the fight has to be fought on, on multiple fronts, right? So there's the media front, um, and how the media is, uh, you know, complicit in, 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 um, a lot of these liberal ideas that are being spread under the guise of progressivism. And there's also, you know, college campuses, and there's also, um, the United Nations, um, which in many ways in, in, in many of their departments, uh, they're in the pocket of Islamists. Um, and there's also other NGOs, right? Like Amnesty International and, and, and Human Rights Watch, which in many ways are hypocritical in what they term and what they decide to uh, spend their energy and their focus on. So I think I think the the battle needs to be waged on all these different fronts, and um, it, it it really just you know including in Congress, and it just depends where your particular passion and your interests lie.
0: So I uh, just to get back to the definition for a second, we'll end maybe this segment on a little bit of levity. But millennial is the name an old person gives a young person they don't like. The example, those millennials and their man buns and their hip-hop and their Instagrams. And I would add to that maybe their uh, association with Islamists and also promotion of political theories that failed under Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin. But uh, we, can, uh, we can always argue about that later. David Swindle, Karis Rea, thank you for joining us this morning.
3: Thank you very you much for
0: having me. One message and then we'll get back to our two minutes closing thoughts. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? (laughs) Or so
5: you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive all with one simple goal in mind to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more.
0: Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. We've got about two minutes left for the end of the program, and I wanted to end with this, my thoughts on APAC. Seeing 18,000 individuals of all different stripes, colors, political affiliations, the unaffiliated, in the Washington Convention Center from Sunday to Tuesday showed me three things. Number one, the pro-Israel movement in this country is not on the doldrums. It is not on the downgrade. It is on the rise, and it is thanks to organizations, not just like APAC, but the broad plethora of American political support for this country that I happen to be a citizen of, and also a citizen of the United States, shows that there's no such thing as dual loyalty, but only a unipolar interest. And that is seeing democracy flourish in the Middle East and having a strong alliance between the United States and not just Israel, but all of her allies. The second thing that it showed to me was that the rift in the Democratic Party right now is one that they have a chance to decide whether they will embrace Omar, they will embrace Tleb, they will embrace Ocasio-Cortez, or the old guard will fight back to try to make room for new individuals who are the counter-narrative to this resurgent socialist Islamist tendency in that party. And the third thing is what I think the 2020 presidential election will be about. The Democrats will be running against Trump, and the Republicans will be running against this rise in socialism and Islamism prevalent in the Democratic Party today. I want to thank Delaney Onchik for providing the great coordination for today's interviews, Lisa Barbunis, our communications director, and all of you listening to the program. I'm Greg Roman. This is Middle East Forum Century Radio signing off.